we're continuing our discussion of the armor of God and we're focusing on a couple of things as we discuss the armor of God. The first really is that the imperative, the, the, the pressing need to upgrade our understanding from Sunday school days of kids wearing cardboard cutouts uh, pretending to be Roman soldiers. Uh, the unfortunate truth is that most people have not updated their understanding of the armor of God beyond that. And almost the mention of the armor of God is more or less, uh, it, it evokes the emotions of a child uh, putting in Sunday school putting on cardboard cutouts and pretending you know, to be a soldier. And yet, and yet, uh, and the second part is, this is how Paul described the effective workings of the power of God and the authority of God to overthrow the enemy. So, you know, for most people, if they have updated their understanding of the armor of God, it is almost to, to go, through, go through a ritual in their morning prayers to say, I'm putting on the armor of God and I'm going to take the shield of faith, I'm going to take the helmet of salvation today in all the things that come my way. It's not something you put on and take off. It's not a kid's costume. It is the changing of a mindset in the matter of engaging the enemy. It is to understand what it means for you to be the exousia, the executive authority of the dunamis, the power of God, of Christ, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The question is, why do I even need to be a participant in the use of this all authority grant of, of power? And the answer is because we have an enemy and it requires a changed mindset. All of this takes place not in the realm of the visible but in the realm of the invisible. The invisible surrounds us, uh, the invisible is in us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that's how this Ephesians 6 introduction to the armor of God began. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemy is invisible and because he is invisible, he enjoys certain distinct advantages. If you can't see your enemy, the likelihood is that you'll think he doesn't exist and yet everything in your environment is affected by as we have looked at before, by the schemes of the enemy, the invisible uh, contrivances designed to capture the soul. So when Paul comes down to the point of saying, above all, this would be verse 16, describing the components of the armor of God, above all, take 
the shield of faith with which you may quench all, all of the fiery darts of the wicked. Here, we, we, it, it, it draws back echoes of the psalm that says that a thousand arrows shall fall at your, at your hand and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Speaking to a barrage of charges, a barrage of accusations, a barrage of, of uh, missiles hurled against you. That would suggest to me an ongoing onslaught of the enemy against the mind of the believer. We would be, we would be derelict in the worst way to enter this battle without that uh, component of our equipping that is capable of quenching all of these attacks. Do you know what the greatest struggle that believers have on an ongoing basis? It's a struggle against the definition of persons according to two measures. The first is, what is my identity? Who am I? And the second is, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Now, the enemy is capable of distorting that perspective in ways that you simply do not understand. Beginning with your generations, these mental assaults may be passed on to you while you are in the womb because the emotions of your mother when she's carrying you are directly passed down into the very nadir, into the very rootstock of your emotions. And when these uh, thoughts are stirred at a subsequent time in your lifetime, you will behave according to the emotions that have been stirred in you, whether or not you are able to recognize the relationship between how you are feeling in the particular moment in time and the emotions that have been stirred and where those emotions came from. These are the fiery darts of the wicked. These are the missiles that, and we'll talk about the wicked in a moment, that, that Satan hurls against us, whether directly or through human agencies that have penetrated our defenses and have access to our souls. When we let people in to our emotions by lowering our defenses, they, they come into the perimeter of our lives and whether they are aware of it or not, and most of the time they are not aware of it, 
they can be useful to the enemy to hurl these fiery darts. The concept here is like the sting of a serpent, the root word for seraph, for seraph or the seraphim in the Hebrew suggests the sting of a serpent. So these crafts of the enemy, these stings of the serpent are targeting us with absolute precision and with the enemy knows what he's doing and his intent is to upset us. So if we think that this warfare is something we can engage in the fashion of childhood uh, fantasy uh, informed by our Sunday school years, we are way behind the times. Just in this bit of brushstroke that I have done uh, here in the few opening minutes of introducing the shield of faith, I've done just enough, barely enough, to acquaint you with the the significant advantage that our enemy has. The emotions of your mother are informed by all the circumstances that she was subject to at the time that you were in the womb. Think of the story of Mary and Elizabeth each carrying their respective sons in their wombs and the simple reference to the baby leaping in the womb. Now, obviously, the Scripture goes to length to make sure that that incident is recorded. So if you'll allow me, let me just show you by a cutaway, just just to look at this briefly, that you might understand our vulnerabilities to the fiery darts of the enemy, particularly when we have no frame of reference for understanding the significant advantages the enemy has, that he knows about and that he employs with consistency to the tune of a thousand or 10,000, a barrage, a rain of arrows, not Cupid's little arrow that uh, is shot on the 14th of February every year when we, when we celebrate a, a thing called uh, Valentine's Day. No, this is war. This is war with the intent of taking you out. Paul was writing to the Ephesians about this kind of warfare when he said, I want you to know three things about you in Christ. I, want you, you, I wanted you to know, number one, what is the hope of your calling? Oh, excuse me, what is the hope of His calling? In short, what has He invested when He brought you forward out of His mind, put you in, his, in your mother's womb with the intent that when you live on the earth, He would live in you and He would live through you in an environment of opposition 
by your enemy using these wild schemes of which you are generally unaware. What is God's intent and how, how does God hope to pull this off? So what is the hope of His calling? The second thing is, what is His glorious inheritance in the saints? In other words, what has He invested of Himself in the hope of gain, in the hope of seeing the result eventually? What is His uh, glorious inheritance in the saints? And number three, what is the working of His mighty power on behalf of those who believe. And what we're talking about here is how does that mighty power work on your behalf to enable you to be the, the, the incarnation of the hope of His calling in you and that in your life the fruit of His glorious inheritance will be brought forth in due season and all of that in an environment of fiery darts by the tens of thousands. You see how radically important this is and if we don't know about these things, there's no possibility that we may be able to employ them. Yet the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not about going to the polls and voting, they're not about writing your congressman, they're not about taking to the streets and demonstrating, they're not about manipulating your circumstances, all of those are carnal and completely, completely ineffective to turn the tide of this battle. That's why we're watching so many believers fall under the barrage of these arrows, these attacks, because they're fighting ineffectively against an unrelenting enemy. So in the example of Jesus uh, in His mother's womb and John in His mother's womb and Mary and Elizabeth, the respective mothers, engaging, we see how this entrapment can be set up without you having any clue about it. So let me just talk for a few moments about how your actions decades later are predisposed by the emotions that were passed on to you while you were yet in your mother's womb and why people who have come into your environment saying and doing things can stir those prior emotions to such a degree that your actions are hundred percent predictable decades after this impartation of, of emotions while you were in your mother's womb. The story is Mary and Elizabeth and of course you remember that the baby leapt in the womb. Uh, John leapt in Elizabeth's womb, why? Because Elizabeth had been instructed by the angel Gabriel to come up and validate to Elizabeth, the mother of John, that what her husband, Zechariah, who was a priest, had experienced at the time of the evening sacrifice was indeed a valid uh, message from God concerning 
the uh, Elizabeth becoming pregnant with John and the birth of John. And Mary came to bring additional good news to Elizabeth and that good news in part included the idea that both, both of their sons would fulfill divinely appointed destinies, namely that John the Baptist would be the forerunner and the announcer of the Messiah who was Mary's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Elizabeth being quite literate in the Scriptures responded to Mary's um, exhortation and confirmation with a brilliant uh, recitation of Scripture and saluted Mary as being blessed amongst women. She was content that her son was included in this divine destiny of the Messiah. A wave of emotions quite obviously swept Elizabeth when she was brought into accord with the understanding of divine destiny. You know, we sometimes read the Scriptures as if they are lifeless, unemotional, written literature. We don't seem to remember that these are real people being affected in the same ways that people would be affected today if the same things were happening to them. I mean, how would a woman respond if there had been quite a bit of mystery surrounding her pregnancy such as that uh, her husband had seen an angel at the time of the evening prayer? And, but as a, as a result of this encounter, her husband was struck dumb, could not speak, a, a divine happening. And there was all this rumor circulating around uh, the experience that Zechariah had. How would Elizabeth feel about this? What would, would she not see all of this as shrouded in mystery and would she not long for an understanding? After all, she's carrying the baby. When Mary comes up and says, the same angel that your husband encountered has come to me and has told me to come up and tell you that both the child I'm carrying, and that was the principal message the angel came to tell me, that the child I'm carrying is of the Holy Spirit and your child is part of the destiny of the revealing of the Messiah. Now, what do you suppose would be the feelings of Elizabeth to find out the answer to this mystery? Well, it's spoken in her response. She's overjoyed. Do people have any emotions when they're overjoyed? What does overjoy mean? It means beyond joyful. I mean, normally if you're joyful, <laughs> it will be a pretty powerful emotion. But if you're beyond joyful, it's ecstasy. The emotion of ecstasy burst forth from Elizabeth in the words and in the language she spoke in response to what Mary had told her. 
and in conjunction with that, the baby leapt in the womb. John therefore was imprinted in his foundational emotions with an anticipation of ecstasy, abandonment by joy, losing all of your cautions, being pulled into one of the most powerful of emotions and that became his foundational emotion. Now we know later on in his life he was fearless when he was doing the things God called him to do, fearless in decreeing that that God had sent him uh, to announce the Messiah. And God had told him before the fact that the one upon whom he would see the Holy Spirit descend and remain, he would be the Messiah. John kept these things in his heart waiting for that time. And then thirty years later, Jesus and John are standing in the river Jordan. He is the baptizer, Jesus is the one coming to be baptized. And before the angel, excuse me, before the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove to give John the proof that he was the one, that Jesus was the Messiah, the one he was looking for, before that happened, because that did not happen until, until Jesus had come up out of the water, ex post facto after the fact, after the fact of John declaring when Jesus said, baptize me, John declaring, why are you asking me to baptize you? I need to be baptized by you. How then did John know to declare that Jesus ought be the one baptizing the baptizer? Hence it's very simple that feeling, his mother's feeling that now was the base emotion of John overwhelmed the otherwise uh, fearless John. He had the same feeling again. Standing in front of Jesus, now both of them thirty-year-old men, the, the same emotion that overtook him in his mother's womb now envelops him. What am I saying? I'm saying that the emotions that are implanted at the base of your soul when you're in your mother's womb, whether those emotions are ecstasy, anxiety, ecstasy on one hand, on the other hand, the extreme, anxiety, worry, fear, all the kinds of emotions that a woman might have if conversations uh, about her pregnancy are occurring within an environment of uncertainty, of rejection, of hurtful words, of doubt, all those things are passed down into the child and they are the child's base emotions. They are his his or her go-to emotions. 
That's why sometimes children who have grown up as adults don't really know why they just feel melancholy or why they feel anxious, worried, fearful. They don't know that, but they do feel that whether they know it or not. These are the emotions of their parents. Oh, excuse me, specifically, these are the emotions of the mother. Those emotions may be caused by interactions with the father, by interactions with uh, in-laws, by interactions with friends, uh, just the circumstances in which the person has become, the woman has become pregnant may impart those emotions into the child and the child then is vulnerable to the stirring of those emotions and will respond predictably when that is so. What if your enemy knew that about you? How vulnerable, how vulnerable would you be? These would be the fiery darts of the wicked by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, a barrage you couldn't possibly escape by just trying to figure it out. Listen, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, it doesn't matter how rich you are, it doesn't matter how prominent you are, it doesn't matter how successful you are, Nobody is immune from this level of attack. This is a level of attack that comes in underneath your radar. You have no defenses to these forms of attack except the shield of faith, which I haven't even begun to unpack yet. I'm simply talking about the fiery darts that the shield of faith is capable of quenching, quenching every fiery dart of the wicked. So you see how important it is to understand what the shield of faith is. This is not a Sunday school lesson, this is life lesson. This is how things work in the real world and the fact that believers have no, generally have no idea about these things means we stumble through life always afraid of the footsteps behind us, always fearful that we're going to be overthrown. And more to the point, we watch leaders routinely become overthrown and we, don't, we see that they have no idea why they are overthrown. And we see people in the pews struggling regularly with doubt, with fear, with unbelief. These are all emotions that are stirred about which and concerning which a person may have no idea as to the origin of these things. That would be a separate inquiry to find out what it was that the enemy was able to use to target you considering the circumstances attending you from your mother's womb. But the, fire, the, the shield of faith is perfectly able and designed to quench every fiery dart 
coming against you regarding your identity and your purpose. So the next time we'll begin to unpack what is meant by the shield of faith and how it works. We'll first talk about what is the shield of faith. I'm Sam Solon and we'll we'll consider these matters going forward. Bye-bye.